Hello, I'm Christopher Clark, and welcome to Germany Now, a podcast from the Cambridge DAAD hub, the nerve center for German studies at the University of Cambridge. This is our first episode, and I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Dr. Norbert Röttgen. Dr. Röttgen, a lawyer by training, has held many distinguished offices in German politics. He's been at various times a federal minister in the government of Angela Merkel, chair of the Bundestag Foreign Affairs Committee, deputy leader of the Christian Democratic Union, chief whip of the CDU-CSU group in the Bundestag, to name just a few of the posts that he's held. But perhaps most importantly, he's been a member of the German parliament, representing the constituency of Rhein-Sieg-Kreis II since 1994. For many years, his has been an important voice, particularly on European policy and the foreign relations of Germany and the EU. Norbert Röttgen, thank you so much for being here. We're delighted that you can join us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, on the 10th of December 2021, the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, standing beside his French counterpart, the President Emmanuel Macron, affirmed the importance of Europe. And he said, and I'm quoting him, we want to reinforce Europe to work together for European sovereignty. Of course, it's Macron who's been pushing this idea of European sovereignty, pulling the concept back out of the grip of the populist Eurosceptics. But here are the same words in the mouth of a German chancellor. What do you think and how do you feel when you hear them? Yes, I'm, I'm of course, skeptical about uh, this big word of sovereignty. First of all, in a very fundamental sense, is there any kind of sovereignty, state sovereignty, really left in our time of globalization? Or are we living in a time of interdependence where sovereignty turns out to be a term and a reality admittedly, of the 20th, perhaps 19th century. So interdependence, uh, new concepts of sovereignty that no single state has enough power to really shape its uh, destiny so that we are in need of others, of friends and perhaps adversaries alike. So I have my fundamental doubts regarding Europe particularly. I think we are unfortunately witnessing the very opposite of sovereignty in our days. We are experiencing a conflict as dire and serious and threatening as perhaps never since World War II or at least after the end of the Cold War. It's the current threat by Russia to invade, to attack Ukraine. Perhaps I would say it's the announcement and the determination of the Russian leader Vladimir Putin to change the post-Cold War order by violence and war. And where is Europe? Europe is not even at the table. It's, it's a negotiation and a confrontation between Russia and the United States. And Europe is absent, not because it is held out by the United States, but because of our own weakness. So the reality is the opposite of the big words used, unfortunately, by the French president. But isn't this precisely why Europeans, or some Europeans, are drawn right now to the idea of a European sovereignty? Because it's hard to imagine how Europe could act in a more autonomous and more impactful way without securing sovereignty. I think there is an appeal, itself. of course. 
and this is the reason why it is used. But the appeal is not so much related to foreign policy, but it's, I think, an appeal which is, and I think intentionally, and this is the political sense of this rhetoric, addressed to the domestic audience. The leitmotiv of the French president has been that he wants to create and shape a l'Europe qui protège. So I think this is a fundamental desire of ordinary people. We are living in times of turmoil, of unraveling, of disorder, of threats. Everything is changing very fundamentally, and this creates fundamental insecurity. And politicians, of course, are tempted to offer security against it. And I think this rhetoric wants to deliver on this desire. However, I think if we just try to provide a rhetoric, words instead of deeds, disappointment is certain to be the end of this story. So I think we have to build better Europe. I think there are more possibilities, opportunities to make Europe stronger, of course, but not by rhetoric and words mostly, but by deeds. We have to work together. We have to create a Europe step by step, which is able and willing to defend itself. Is a coherently acting Europe, coher acting coherently at least on the international stage, on an equal footing with other powers, within reach, do you think? And if it is not within reach, what does that mean for Europe's most populous and economically most important state, Germany? My view is that given the fact that a, a Europe acting on the level of 27 member states, which is able and willing to act abroad is not within reach, definitely not, because there is not a sufficient unity among us. I think the consequence is let's start doing it with four, five, six, with a camp of the able and willing, because I think this is the, the ultimate question of existence or rele relevance or irrelevance of Europe. If we are getting it straight to act in our interest and for our values, even beyond our borders, or we will be get irrelevant if we do not achieve this ability. So let's start in a very pragmatic way in doing it. So, Norbert, you're basically saying that we shouldn't be trying to make the European Union do something that it's patently not designed and not able to do. We should be looking instead to create a coalition of the willing within the Union, something we can act with, something that can work autonomously on the international stage. Yes, exactly this way, yeah. So does Germany actually have a European policy? Because one of the curious things about German-European policy has been that it's often been very difficult to tell what that policy is. Yeah, yes, it, it depends on what we are talking about. I think we have a clear view on the internal market, on the common currency policy, to name a few. I think where we really do lack a German policy on Europe is what is our concept to make Europe operable in a pragmatic way? If we are realistic about Europe, it will not be the Europe of 27 member states or uh, within the European institutions effectively getting influence internationally. So we have to do it in a different, in a pragmatic way. And we have not really decided what is the consequence of the reality that the 27 member states are not going to make it operable in a foreseeable future. 
So you're saying that this is something that the German political culture hasn't yet really provided a, a, an agreed, a consensual account of what Germany thinks Europe is for. Absolutely. I think we are sticking to uh, wishful thinking. We are talking about the common European foreign and security policy. And now the current government is very much approaching the, the vocabulary of the French president of sovereignty and autonomy. So we are dealing with this very pragmatic, concrete reality on a very abstract level of rhetoric. And this is a substitute for real policy, which we have not developed yet after many years of discussion. And this creates a void, which is very unfortunate, and voids are getting to be filled by others. And unfortunately, Russia is determined to fill the void Europe has left and is leaving. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Russia, Norbert, because um, I wanted to come back, if we could, to, to, the, to the current Ukrainian crisis, which um, you touched on earlier. Because if we look at Berlin at the moment, we see really a, a very rich and you know, contradictory menu of views. Uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, if you don't mind, I'm going to sketch out a little bit of the background just for, for listeners. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline, already built, but not yet approved for operation, has been criticized both by domestic critics uh, in Germany itself and by the US and Ukrainian governments who argue that it will make Europe too dependent on Russia and that it involves playing into the hands of the Russian government. The current Social Democrat Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, on the other hand, has repeatedly argued that the pipeline is a purely private sector enterprise that's out of the reach of the state and oughtn't properly to be part of a, the state's um, foreign or domestic policy. On the other hand, Michael Roth, the new chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, also a Social Democrat, so a member of the same party as Olaf Scholz, has stated that Germany cannot rule out using the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as a means of pressuring the Kremlin, that is to say, threatening not to put it into operation, as a means of pressuring the Kremlin in the event of any further Russian aggressions towards Ukraine. And then we have the Greens, a party also in coalition with the, um, and part of the German government at the moment, whose current foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, is not aligned with the Nord Stream project and is critical of it. And to complicate matters even further, the former SPD Chancellor Gerhard Schröder is close to Russian President Vladimir Putin and sits on the boards of the Russian fossil fuel giants Gazprom and Rosneft. How do you go about untangling a knot like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm really certain that there will be a moment when this knot will be untangled and this will be the moment when and if it comes to applying violence by Russia against Ukraine. If we were to see a military violence or even a war by Russia against Ukraine, I can't imagine that this project Nord Stream 2, which does not have to do anything with German gas supplies, but which is predominantly a weapon against Ukraine. It does not even increase our dependence on Russia because it is not about gas supply. It is about the pipeline. And we have to have enough pipelines for even more gas supplies from Russia to Germany. So I think in that moment, it would be very clear that Germany then is a reliable actor within a common European Western response. 
However, it's extremely unfortunate that we have this lack of clarity and divergence on this project. I have always been an opponent of the project because it is not economic, but it is geopolitical against Ukraine. And it's from the start the weaponization of gas supply. So we are not really contributing to deterrence against Russia with this divergence of views. Well, that's fascinating. And one of the really interesting things about this question is that this divide in German opinion over how to handle relations with Russia is actually very, it's, it's very deep. It goes deep into the political culture and in fact into the German population. But it's also very old. Already in the mid-19th century, you can see, for example, at the court of the Prussian king, Frederick William IV, pro-Russian and pro-Western factions embattled with each other, you know, running this, their own newspapers and arguing against each other, forming two different worldviews on the matter of, of the country's foreign relations. So, so I suppose what I'm wondering is whether, whether there's something specifically German about this, because in most cases, pressure, external pressure has the effect of integrating a political culture. But in Germany, pressure from Russia actually has a divisive effect. Yeah, yes, I have to say, yes, it, is, uh, it has remained until our days. Within Germany, it's particularly rooted in the east of Germany, where you could expect, because Russia, the Soviet Union, and the guys of the former Soviet Union, uh, was responsible for the suppression and oppression of freedom and the free political will of Eastern Germans. But there is a particular sympathy for Russia and for Russian policy. There is a higher degree of anti-Americanism there. But it's also a dividing line within uh, the Western parts of Germany. I can't really explain why it is that way. As you mentioned, and know better than me, it has been a, a traditional trait of the German mood for a long, long time, for centuries. There is a certain romanticism within Germany towards Russia. It's related to the composers, to the musicians, to Dostoevsky, the writers. So it partly it, it borders to kitsch how we see Russia. However, this is a part of the, I would say, within the national mood of Germany that there is a strong inclination, at least in parts, towards Russia, to build bridges, to be in a good relation with Russia. And it is exploited, of course, by businessmen or politicians turned businessmen. And it is exploited by the current Russian regime. Well, it's very interesting what you just said, because um, actually, I think that there's a lot more mutuality in this. I mean, that the, that the, for the Russians as well, there's an ambivalence towards Germany and, uh, you know, hostility and uh, paranoia and so on have to compete with, with admiration and attraction. And you think of all those Germans who, you know, in the in the Russian novels you were referring to, who spent their summers at the at the spa places in Germany, for example, or had their children educated at German universities. So it, clearly, on both sides, there's been a certain ambivalence there. And and this is, if you put it in that light, you know, the the relationship between Germany and Russia has actually been quite complex. There have been periods, obviously, of of terrible, you know, violence, but on the other hand, also periods of collaboration and closeness. So, okay, now, now zeroing in on your own political experience and your own political career, I wanted to ask you, in the run-up to the recent German federal elections, you were one of those who competed to be the 
Kanzlerkandidat, the candidate for the, the office of Chancellor, the most important office in the German political system, on behalf of your party, the Christian Democratic Union. At that time, like all the other candidates, you came under a lot of public scrutiny. And what I wanted to ask you was, what was that like? Did anything about that experience surprise you? Did you learn anything you hadn't known before? So as you mentioned, I have been in politics now for a long time, for more than a quarter of a century. I've been a member of parliament. I've served in different posts. So I was well experienced in politics when I started this candidacy. So I think I have not made a lot of new personal experiences. What I'm experiencing, of course, is that we have reached a new political situation, fundamentally new political situation, also in our country, that the certainties have gone away. The CDU has a result as bad as never before with 24%, unimaginable a year before. So the concept of people's party is fading and we have to rebuild the structures of our democracy under fundamental new conditions of, of disruption and uncertainty. This creates a certain disorientation in the political communication. So this is, is what has been new for me. There is one really positive experience I've made that if you really address where on the basis also of the new social media uh, tools and, and, and use them for political communication, then you can really address young people and you can cause fascination, participation, commitment. So there is a potential to wake up uh, people, particularly and also young people. This was a very, very positive experience. However, it did not suffice to get a majority. But I would say among the younger voters and younger members of my party, there was certainly a majority, and I would, which I count as a big success and a very, very positive experience. Absolutely. And of course, your own party, the Christian Democratic Union, is at the moment in recovery mode. It's taken a big hit in the most recent federal elections. Is the party, in your view, is it prepared to meet the challenges it's going to have to face over the coming years? So this was exactly my pitch that it is exactly about that, that we have to reconnect with a society which is more diverse, less traditional, and that we have to achieve a new kind of intellectual thematic leadership in current domestic and European and international politics. This was my pitch. I have my clear views on that. It has not been accepted by a majority, only by a minority. So. Of course, I have a partisan view. I might be biased, but I am in deep concern, I have to admit. Interesting. Coming back to the broader global setting, um, in Australia, where I come from, China is really the big story now. The, head, the headlines are full of uh, China stories. And uh, that's, of course, thanks to Xi Jinping's stated ambition to make the country the world's leading power by 2050. And, of course, uh, to the extraordinary range of policies that have been mobilized worldwide in support of that objective. For Germany, so far, it seems, China is above all a huge market. And the country has so far tended to keep its economic relationship with, with China, which has been flourishing, ring-fenced off and insulated and separated 
from tensions in the political or in the geopolitical domain. Can this continue or will there need to be a change, do you think? This can't continue. And it is changing. I'm not certain where it ends, uh, but there can't be no doubt that Germany can't simply continue our traditional approach vis-a-vis China, which has been the view that China, first and foremost for Germany, and mostly exclusively, is a huge market for German industrial products of certain branches. So you should not also at the same time not overestimate. There are some branches, it's below 10% of our external market, but of course it is a big market. But I think we have to face a new reality since China has changed its sense of itself. It has turned from a very internally oriented country to the challenge of international order. It is going abroad. It's not only more suppressive internally than ever before, based on very sophisticated digital tools, but it has formed the ability based on economic and technological power, and it has built the will to shape and reshape and rebuild the international order and to replace what we have called since the end of World War II the liberal international order with an order based on new principles and where the might of big countries have a bigger say. And this is the replacement of the principle of right and rule of right and law with interest and power. So China has become the challenger of the international order, and we have to reshape our policy towards China. This has been resisted so far by the German government, also the previous one, but the change of view and perception to a new realism towards China is also taking place in Germany. You mentioned before the uncertainties of of this era, and you know it does seem if we if we think of our epoch as beginning in 1989 that it, it has been incredibly rich in crises. You just have to list them all. You know the the climate crisis, the the COVID crisis, the two we're most concerned with now, the various crises of the post-Soviet peripheral states, the global financial crisis, the eurozone crisis, and and and. How do you read the febrile and unresolved? mood of the present. What's going on? And are you optimistic about our prospects of finding our way into calmer waters? My read of the epoch and era we are in has a different starting point than you mentioned. You took the view that it was 1989 when our epoch started. I think it was 25 years later, in 89 and 90. I think this was a period when we thought that, at least uh, related to Europe, a period of perpetual peace started. Because in this time, we, we saw the, we had the era of the great convergence. We thought that everybody now had to draw the lesson out of the f- first half of the 20th century, and we agreed on the principles. So in the sense of Immanuel Kant, the perpetual peace seemed to be achieved across Europe, including Russia. Unfortunately, this perpetual peace lasted only for 25 years. And the turning point, I think, was in 2014 with the new aggressive Russian foreign policy. 
And then the other elements of turmoil and unraveling started. The election of Trump, unimaginable that such a populist could become the American president. Then we saw Brexit. We have the decade of crises, migration crisis, the euro crisis. Well, so I think we are now in this era since 2014. And my reading is that we are in an in-between period. I think we have left a huge historic circle behind us, the post-war era, and the new international order has yet to emerge. And we are in this in-between period, which is characterized by insecurity, unraveling, disorder, and there is a struggle ongoing. And China wants to be and is determined to be a central power in reshaping the new international order. And the big question for Europe is, are we only the observers of the power struggle of others, or do we develop our willingness and ability to be a shaping part of a new order? Well, as you know, a number of statesmen, Russian, Chinese, but also spokespeople for other authoritarian regimes have rejoiced in the discomfiture of the West and have said these are the end days. Um, we're heading towards a post-liberal and post-Western order and good riddance to bad rubbish. Uh, is that your view? Are we in the end days of the liberal West? No, I think we are not in the end days of the West. I think it's fair to say that the post-war order including into the international law, was a Western liberal order. I think this is really fair to say. And China was not a part of this order when it was decided upon because it lacked the international clout and power in the days after 45. So we are in this, in this period now where everything is on the line again. It's not for certain that the coming decades will be characterized by liberal values. We are in a conflict about political systems. I think it is really a struggle between democratic principles, liberal principles, and the concept of authoritarian states. And in this regard, China first and foremost on the global level, Russia more on a regional level. They are the challenges for what we have called the Western liberal order. And so this is a really existential, historical situation for our future and destiny. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than that. So, Norbert Röttgen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a huge pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Well, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to Germany Now, a podcast of the Cambridge DAAD German Studies Hub. This is Chris Clark. There'll be another episode coming along soon. Thanks for listening. Dennoch ist klar, vor uns liegt noch ein Weg mit Gewaltigen. Dass wir alles dafür tun müssen, dass Europa stark und souverän In einem freien und geeinten Deutschland. Germany Now is a TDC production. The music is by Alexander Clark and the producer is Trevor Dan. <laughs>